It was half past midnight in June of 1942. The night was so dark and foggy, John Cullen couldn't see his own feet. Not that there was much to look at. The 21-year-old seaman was a new Coast Guard recruit, cutting his teeth on beach patrol off Long Island's eastern shore. With the U.S. six months into World War II, someone had to survey the coastlines for any suspicious activity. The often boring patrol, though, tonight was anything but. By the shore, Cullen saw four men through the mist. He swept his flashlight over them and asked who they were. The ringleaders stepped up, claiming they were fishermen who'd washed ashore. But one of the men behind him, holding a bulky bag, barked something in German. Moments later, the English speaker approached Cullen and grabbed his arm. While he didn't show a weapon, he did ask if the seaman had parents who'd miss him if he died, adding, quote, I wouldn't want to have to kill you. The man then handed Cullen $260 and urged him to forget what he'd seen. Cullen took the money and swore he'd keep quiet. Satisfied, the four mysterious men buried their luggage and took off. As soon as he returned to his station, Cullen immediately broke his promise. He reported his sighting, but by the time he came back with a team of Coast Guardsmen, the four men were long gone. The troop dug up what they'd left behind, uncovering bombs. The four men were Nazi spies who'd hidden crates of TNT and detonators on the beach. And the shoreline wasn't their only target. The would-be saboteurs had a much broader plot, and until they were captured, Grand Central Terminal was in trouble. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on Grand Central Station. The famed train station is one of the world's most popular transportation hubs, beloved for both its architecture and tourist attractions. Last episode, we talked about Grand Central's history. After a harrowing accident, The railroad replaced the station's steam-powered trains with electric ones. When real estate developers threatened to demolish the hub in the 1970s, the Supreme Court ruled that it had to be preserved. Then, the terminal underwent a massive restoration. Today, we'll explore a few conspiracy theories involving Grand Central Station. We'll discuss the secret power station beneath the terminal that Adolf Hitler allegedly wanted to destroy, and the private train track that may have been reserved for FDR. We'll also investigate the railroad's efforts to get rid of an underground society of so-called mole people living below ground. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. 
Grand Central Station sprawls across almost 50 acres of prime Manhattan real estate. Between train travel and tourism, it welcomes about 750,000 visitors a day. There's a lot to gawk at. Its celestial ceiling twinkles above a bustling main concourse full of restaurants and shops. The four-faced clock in the middle of the lobby is made of opal glass. But Grand Central's most alluring room lies deep beneath its train tunnels. Off-limits and very much off the radar of the general public, the room's name even evokes something classified and mysterious, M42. The sub-basement used to house the rotary converters that powered much of New York City's rail system. Somewhere between 9 and 13 stories below Grand Central Station, it's also the deepest place in New York City, meaning further underground than the hidden money vaults at the Federal Reserve Bank downtown. The basement is only accessible through one elevator or unmarked staircase, the precise locations of which are secret. Even the terminal's official maps and blueprints don't mention the basement. M42's very existence was seldom acknowledged until the 1980s, unless you were in the Navy. During World War II, a naval training film alluded to the mysterious basement, marketing it as the safest place in New York should a nuclear attack occur. Rumor has it Adolf Hitler knew all about M42 and wanted to blow it up. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number one. During World War II, Nazi spies sought to destroy the secret power station beneath Grand Central. The M42 basement only existed because of William J. Wilgus, the railroad's chief engineer. He was behind the monumental shift to get rid of steam engines and electrify Grand Central's rail system. While this opened up tons of extra space, the railroad needed a new place to store the electric generators that powered its trains. One area was just north of Grand Central, but in the late 1920s, the railroad company sold air rights above the station to the Waldorf Astoria. The swanky hotel demolished the old power station, and the railroad built a new one deeper underground. Construction workers blasted through ancient bedrock to carve out the new substation. Spanning 22,000 square feet, it was almost as big as Grand Central's entire concourse. Ten rotary converters, each two basketball hoops high, buzzed under the station. It was a huge feat of electrical engineering that made local and national headlines. Which cast some doubt on the claim that the basement was a total secret. A June 1930 Scientific American article ran a photo of it along with the headline, Moving a Substation Underground. General Electric put out ads in other magazines, touting M42 as one of the most remarkable substations in existence. But even if its existence was known, M42 was still definitely hidden. Visitors were forbidden, and there was never any signage leading to it. Unless you were an armed guard surveilling it during World War II, chances are you couldn't venture down there. No matter who knew about it, there's no denying its importance to New York City's rail system. Dan Brucker, Grand Central's former chief tour guide, claims that during World War II, 
M42 was responsible for the trains that carried 80% of U.S. troops and supplies. Which made it a potential terrorism target. Brucker says armed guards patrolled the area around M42 with instructions to shoot any trespassers on site. According to Brucker, German forces knew about the basement and tried to destroy it. They only needed buckets of sand. Supposedly, pouring it into the rotary converters would disable them, halting all trains. Hitler supposedly knew all of this because of an informant who used to work at Grand Central. It's unclear who exactly that could have been, or where Dan Brucker got his information from. But as for the four shadowy figures at the beach who escaped John Cullen, these men were a real threat. Shortly after their fateful run-in, they tried to sabotage transit hubs in the tri-state area. Brucker claims that sometime after the spies evaded the Coast Guardsmen, they entered Grand Central. Luckily, the Coast Guard had already warned the authorities. Federal agents reportedly searched the terminal for German luggage and arrested the spies when they came to retrieve their checked bags. The captured agents were part of a covert mission called Operation Pastorius, a Nazi plot to send men to Florida and New York in submarines. Their mission was to sabotage train travel, cut off supply chains, and spread terror. Under questioning, the spies named several targets, Newark's Penn Station in New Jersey, a section of the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad called the Horseshoe Curve, and the Hellgate Bridge connecting Wards Island and Queens. No one ever mentioned a plot against Grand Central. But there are accounts of spies meeting at the terminal. According to New York historian Sam Roberts, the saboteurs watched footage of the Pearl Harbor bombing at Grand Central's newsreel movie theater. But even if they met up there, Grand Central wasn't where they were captured. From what we know, Brucker completely made up his story about the Fed searching their baggage. In reality, the men were actually caught because one of them got cold feet. The English-speaking man who threatened John Cullen on the beach had a wife in Pennsylvania and didn't want to go back to Germany. So he confessed everything to the FBI. Within two weeks, they arrested all eight of the foreign agents. There's no proof to verify Brucker's claim that the German spies planned to attack Grand Central. As the terminal's chief tour guide, he might have just wanted to tell a compelling story about the station. But his credibility took a huge blow in 2017. That year, Grand Central officials found out he was giving unsanctioned tours of the M42 basement and other parts of the terminal. On the basis of security risks, he was fired. Just to play devil's advocate, that could have been because he was spilling sensitive secrets. Sure, but a lot of Brucker's claims are probably wrong. At that time, New York's electrical grid was already vast. Destroying the basement's converters would have stopped trains in Grand Central, but most rail lines elsewhere got their power from other sources. So his suggestion that attacking the basement would totally stall American rail travel was a huge exaggeration. But it would halt travel in New York, at least temporarily. Not to mention, we know the spies had TNT, and if an explosion was triggered within America's biggest transportation hub during World War II, it could wreak havoc. 
What's more, the FBI concluded that the targets of Operation Pistorius were, quote, spots where railroads could be effectively disabled, end quote. M42 was the perfect place for that. But the captured saboteurs never mentioned Grand Central as a terrorism target, which is why on a scale of one to 10, with one meaning unbelievable and 10 as the definitive truth, I'm giving conspiracy theory number one a two out of 10. That seems a little low for me, considering that those four spies Colin found on the beach were probably seen at Grand Central watching the Pearl Harbor newsreel. That can't be a coincidence. I'd give this theory a five out of 10. We may never know if M42 was a target, but the Nazi sabotage operation was real. If it weren't for Cullen's beach sighting and one of the spies defecting, Grand Central might have met a grim fate during World War II. Even so, the M42 sub-basement was not the biggest secret lying beneath the station. A private train track directly above it held even greater historical significance. Some say it's how FDR kept his symptoms of polio from the public eye. Coming up, Grand Central's alleged hidden train track for U.S. presidents. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast, and I'm here to tell you about my new 10-episode limited series, Obituaries. They're some of the most iconic figures of all time, celebrated in death for their individual achievements and impact on society. But in life, the relationships they kept tell a different story, one of unexpected connections that yielded extraordinary change. Every Wednesday on Obituaries, join my co-host Carter and me as we explore the shared legacies of prolific pairs from the past. From the mutual traumas of entertainers Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald, to the unlikely admiration between visionaries Mark Twain and Nikola Tesla, each episode of Obituaries digs deep into the lasting impressions made between two legendary figures and how their entanglements changed the course of history. These meaningful duos may have passed on, but the profound effect they had on each other and us will live on forever. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Obituaries. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. For decades, the marvels beneath Grand Central have been as mysterious as the station above ground. Take the train car that sat abandoned beneath the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. In 2019, Metro-North moved it out of the bowels of Grand Central and into a museum. Initially, it didn't look like much. Its rusted blue exterior was covered in grime. It seemed like it belonged in a junkyard. But the hotel above was swanky. It boasted fancy clientele who needed privacy, or in a pinch, a swift escape route. For Waldorf guests, the easiest way to travel unnoticed was via Track 61, which was exactly where that abandoned train car idled. That hidden tunnel was perfect for secret travel, especially for public figures who had to come and go constantly, like a president who wanted to hide the fact that he used a wheelchair. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two, 
U.S. presidents, including FDR, used an armored train track beneath Grand Central to travel in and out of New York unseen. As the theory goes, President Roosevelt wanted to hide his symptoms of polio from the public. He allegedly had Track 61 custom-made so he could enter and exit the Waldorf unseen. He also reportedly had his own train car, that same rusty blue one. As far as we know, the car was only accessible from a nondescript freight elevator just east of the Waldorf Astoria garage near 49th Street. The elevator was supposedly custom-made to fit President Roosevelt's entire Pierce Arrow limo. This way, New Yorkers could see him during public motorcades, but he'd never have to stand up or climb in or out of the vehicle. We know FDR used Track 61 in such a publicity stunt at least once. According to Secret Service logs from October 21, 1944, President Roosevelt went on a citywide campaign trip. Rumors were flying that his paralysis had worsened and he could no longer stand upright. He wanted to prove them wrong. Amid cold rain, Roosevelt's motorcade traveled through four boroughs in an open car. About one million New Yorkers saw him that day. Every now and then, he stood up to greet his constituents. Roosevelt ended the day with a nighttime speech to the Foreign Policy Association at the Waldorf Astoria. When he finished, his Secret Service detail whisked him into the elevator that led to Track 61. FDR wasn't the only VIP to frequent the Waldorf. Its executive suite hosted every U.S. president, from Herbert Hoover in 1931 to Barack Obama in 2011. But there's no public record of any president besides FDR traveling through a secret railway underneath the hotel. However, there's a good chance Track 61 was always roped off and ready just in case. General John J. Pershing may have been the first to use it. The prominent U.S. Army officer traveled through the secret tunnels in 1938. He'd just recovered from a heart attack in Arizona, but now he needed a ride to the hotel for his son's wedding. When he was in a rush, the private track was the perfect route for someone in a hurry. Douglas MacArthur, the five-star general and former Army Chief of Staff, also used Track 61. He had his own special car with a custom flag when he lived in the Waldorf in the 1950s. Others used the secret tunnel for less formal affairs. In 1965, famous pop artist Andy Warhol hosted a massive underground party there. In 1980, the New York Times reported that squatters had occupied the tunnel. By the early aughts, the Secret Service must have secured the premises. George W. Bush reserved Track 61 as an emergency escape route whenever he took meetings at the Waldorf. New York historian Sam Roberts claims this was standard procedure for any president staying at the hotel. He also said a diesel-powered train waited there in case of a security breach where the president needed cover. But FDR was probably the only president who actually used the Track 61 tunnel. It isn't mentioned in any other administration's Secret Service logs. Plus, there's no record of Roosevelt ever taking that specific secret blue rail car. That's because it's just a decrepit, run-of-the-mill baggage carrier. Grand Central used it to carry construction tools. 
The wide doors and supposedly bulletproof armor were all standard features. It eventually got left near Track 61. There's no record of that car ever transporting presidents or any other famous passengers. And it certainly wasn't custom detailed for Roosevelt's limo. It's hard to determine how this baggage car ever got linked to Roosevelt. But the rumors may have come from the former tour guide we encountered in the first theory, Dan Brucker. Before he was fired, the Grand Central historian led tours to the abandoned train car for years, just like he did with the M42 basement. Countless journalists used him as a source. In 2015, a CNN reporter stepped into the supposed secret car while it was still under Grand Central and said, quote, you can actually really feel the history in here. Except that history was made up. While parts of this theory are grounded in truth, a lot of it isn't. Brecker lied while giving misleading tours to a train car that FDR definitely never used. So the car and tunnel parts are a bit separate. The tunnel was right beneath the hotel that had a presidential suite, so the track within was probably cordoned off for commanders-in-chief in case of emergency. However, that possible emergency never happened. Besides FDR using it on the campaign trail one time, there's no hard evidence of any presidents actually being down there. True, but they all seem to have the option to, which suggests that a private presidential track existed. I could also see the Secret Service hiding any records of whether presidents actually used the tunnel for security reasons which is why I give conspiracy theory number two a five out of 10. There's no hard evidence suggesting track 61 was specifically designed for FDR or that it accommodated his limo or even that he or any other president used it routinely. That's why I'm going with a three out of 10. It's hard not to notice a trend here. Many of the secrets behind Grand Central have to do with its tunnels. Allegedly, Nazi spies and at least one U.S. president visited the cavernous tracks. But our next theory is about the people who called these places home, permanently. Coming up, Grand Central's response to New York City's infamous mole people. Now back to the story. Among the more covert jobs at Grand Central, a transit police officer named Louis Napolitano worked the graveyard shift at the station in the 1980s. The railroad wanted him to monitor loitering, a euphemism for people who slept inside the terminal. New York City was facing a homelessness epidemic. Scores of unhoused people nestled in the terminal overnight, seeking refuge from unforgiving weather. Napolitano was supposed to, quote, get them up and keep them moving, end quote. That meant he had to kick people out every night, but he realized how callous those orders were and instead enacted his own policy, leave the sleepers alone if they weren't bothering anyone. Napolitano wasn't the only empathetic cop. Brian Henry, a Metro North police officer who served from 1985 to 2009, steered as many unhoused people as he could toward outreach services. Unfortunately, the compassionate beat cops were often in the minority. Other police officers were downright cruel. 
which is the basis of conspiracy theory number three. New York City officials and transit police officers used excessive force against the mole people living beneath Grand Central. In 1991, the New York Department of Health conducted a survey that found 6,031 unhoused people in Grand Central and Penn stations. Yet one transit official guessed the real number was four times larger. Headcounts were notoriously inaccurate, as many unhoused people were reluctant to talk to city authorities. And it's hard for officials to find people who regularly move around underground. Many people lived in the tunnels in part because of income inequality. Gentrification meant wealthier families moved into once affordable neighborhoods and rent prices skyrocketed. It left families who'd lived comfortably for generations suddenly unable to afford to stay in their homes. Some newly unhoused people took to the city's vast tunnel network, figuring it was the best alternative to being out in the street. Many station residents didn't consider themselves homeless. They lived comfortably, commuting in and out of the tunnels for work. Some proudly called themselves mole people. If you want to hear more about the inner workings of mole people, we dig deeper into this topic on the Spotify original from Parcast, Unexplained Mysteries, this week. As it was, many mole people lived in Grand Central. In the 1970s and 80s, the terminal's main waiting room became a safe haven for unhoused people who slept close together on its benches. But railroad officials often forced them to leave and some slipped away into the tunnels. Everyone who lived in Grand Central had a different story. In his book on Grand Central, New York historian and journalist Sam Roberts cataloged how a few people ended up there. A woman named Madeline lost her house when her grandmother died. She said she, quote, saw the opportunity to be secure in Grand Central, to be secure for the rest of my life. She added that she liked the community at the terminal. In her mind, it was way better than Penn Station. Along with Madeline was a 55-year-old named Lee, who moved into Grand Central after he lost his job cleaning cars, and a woman who went by Mama, Mama stayed near the train station off Vanderbilt Avenue. She didn't speak much English, but still passed out clothes and food to her unhoused peers in Grand Central. But the terminal's officials didn't always let people who lived there sleep in peace. For its first 60 years, Grand Central was open 24-7. But in 1973, the railroad shut its doors every night from 1.30 to 5.30 a.m. Before the terminal was restored, officials advertised the nightly closings as a way to hasten cleaning and to shut down late-night rail lines that people weren't using anymore. But they also used the closures to purge the station of all the unhoused people. According to a New York Times article by Murray Ilson, a spokesperson for the railroad said the early morning hours were when Grand Central was frequented by, quote, undesirables. This wasn't the most compassionate approach. Unhoused people snuck into unused railway cars and tried to stay out of sight to avoid harassment from authorities. Once Metro-North assumed ownership of Grand Central, railroad officials opened the terminal in the winter when the weather got cold. But they reversed course after an uptick in crime. Even still, 
people called Grand Central home. In 1988, as the terminal turned 75, local advocates guessed that some 500 people stayed there every night. They estimated 50 of them had been there for a year or longer. According to Robert Hayes, a lawyer who founded the Coalition for the Homeless, this perfectly illustrated New York's housing crisis. He said, quote, It's a metaphor for New York in 1988, in a shrine of such beauty to have such misery. Grand Central officials tried to address the crisis. They installed drop-in shelters near the terminal where people could obtain food and outreach services. Some even found more permanent housing through the terminal's programs. The Metropolitan Transportation Authority also hired a neighborhood committee to aid unhoused people. They banded together with a group of property owners near the station called the Grand Central Partnership. This new organization designed a business improvement district that provided more help. They turned an old parochial school into a place where unhoused people in Grand Central could shower, eat, get counseling, and sleep for the night. But efforts weren't always that civil. Transit officials took down benches in the waiting room so that people couldn't sleep there for the night. Some of the volunteers got aggressive. The Grand Central Partnership's members often threw unhoused people out of the terminal before rendering any aid. Police officers evicted plenty of residents too, often brutally. Wielding flashlights and weapons, they took to tunnels beneath Grand Central under strict orders to remove anyone sleeping there. In her book, The Mole People, Life in the Tunnels Beneath New York City, reporter Jennifer Toth spoke to some of the people who lived in Grand Central, specifically about their run-ins with the police. One of her sources, who went by JC, said, quote, some of them will kick people around when they find them sleeping and break up their stuff for no reason at all. They take out a lot of their aggression down there, especially when they're having a bad day. On one occasion, a Metro North officer chased JC through the tunnels and pulled a cocked gun on him. The cop knew JC lived in the tunnels illegally and apparently had been after him for months. That spring day, he finally tracked JC down and pinned him in an alley that led to a dead end. The officer thought it was funny, saying JC was, quote, so scared he wet his pants. JC wasn't amused, he was terrified. Fortunately for him, the cop didn't arrest him, and over time, the two developed a relationship, although they never really trusted each other. And JC wasn't the only one who had such a dicey run-in with the police. Toth wrote that nearly every mole person she spoke to had a similar story. One particularly harrowing account involved an undocumented immigrant known as Pepin. According to Toth, he lived under a platform in Grand Central Station. He was harmless, but so starved that he could barely move, which is why he didn't budge when police officers told him to leave. They responded by picking him up, tossing him around, and by some accounts, nearly killing him. Pepin ended up in the hospital. Some policemen, for their part, argue that these stories of brutality are exaggerated. One officer told Toth that those living in the tunnels were far more dangerous. They said, quote, the people who live down there, they can see in the dark, and they can hide, and they can throw things. All we got is a gun. End quote. 
That may explain why some officers believe they have to get violent to protect themselves. It's a fraught situation where there's no trust between the public and law enforcement. Even the cops who preferred a softer touch felt they had to get stern if unhoused people didn't cooperate. In 1988, Brian Henry, the Metro North cop who guided unhoused people to outreach services, became the first officer assigned to deal exclusively with tunnel residents. He made sandwiches for them and tried to keep their conversations civil. His duties included helping many people find stable housing above ground and get into job training programs. But Henry also told Toth that he evicted about 400 people from the tunnels. He'd ask people to leave voluntarily, and if they refused to cooperate, he'd kick them out. Thanks to Toth, we know Henry was the same officer who pulled his gun on JC. Toth did some groundbreaking reporting, but it's worth noting that her book has its fair share of inaccuracies. According to a writer named Joseph Brennan, many of Toth's physical descriptions of the tunnels beneath Grand Central were exaggerated or misleading. He cataloged numerous passages in her book in which her tunnel geography was wrong. Many errors had to do with the tracks in Grand Central. With that in mind, it's hard to take all her claims about the terminal's mole people at face value. It could mean that the police aren't as brutal as her accounts suggest. They may just be trying to help. Most of the mole people live in dilapidated conditions, not to mention the tunnels are hardly safe spaces for permanent housing. The occupants might be better off in shelters. But then there's the flip side. The cops displaced people who fought tooth and nail to finally find a place that feels like home. If you kick someone out for the night, there's no guarantee their next destination will be any safer. And given all the stories of beatings, gun-toting, and threats, it's hard to argue that Grand Central's law enforcement always helped unhoused residents in good faith. Since most encounters between officials and mole people happen in abandoned tunnels, there's no paper trail or footage to show if violence is common. But the eyewitness accounts suggest police officers exploited their authority, which is enough for me to give this theory a 7 out of 10. That's fair. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, police officers seemed intent on purging Grand Central of the mole people. It's not too difficult to believe that some police would cross the line into violence, even if it's hard to evaluate how often this may have happened. I give this theory a six. This episode, we discussed Nazis, presidential hideaways, and mole people. Of all of them, conspiracy theory number three seems to have the most basis in documented fact. Grand Central wanted the mole people gone, and some cops probably were more brutal than they needed to be. But I'm still not sure there was a culture of violence against unhoused people. I agree that this theory feels likely, but I also think going back to the 1940s, the Nazis had intentions to blow up that basement. During World War II, the station was near the height of its popularity. It seems natural that would make it a target. After all, Grand Central Station is majestic and mysterious. 85 years after it opened in 1998, Paul Goldberger wrote in The New Yorker that Grand Central is the, quote, clearest embodiment of the essential urban idea, 
that different kinds of buildings work together to make a whole that is far greater than any of its parts. In other words, Grand Central Station isn't just a train depot or a mall or a giant living room. It's an American icon. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. For more information on this topic, we found Grand Central, How a Train Station Transformed America by Sam Roberts, particularly helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Jackson Knapp, with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Anya Bayerly and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, it's Vanessa from ParCast. If you enjoy our in-depth profiles on historical figures and famous fates, you'll love my new limited series, Obituaries. Every Wednesday on Spotify, join me and my co-host Carter as we explore the unlikely bonds forged between two meaningful figures from the past and discover how those relationships impacted the future. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Obituaries. Listen weekly, free and only on Spotify.